Hey everybody, welcome to Sweater Weather. I'm Aaron Giovanone. Great to be back with you. This week we are talking to Dr. Stephanie Ross. She is Associate Professor and Director of the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. She is the author, co-author, co-editor of several works on labor and unions in Canada, including Building a Better World, An Introduction to the Labor Movement in Canada, and the book we primarily discussed today, Labor Under Attack, Anti-Unionism in Canada. What levels of support do unions enjoy in Canada among workers themselves and in the general public? What are the sources of influential anti-union sentiments and arguments? What do labor organizations themselves sometimes do that could foster anti-union sentiment among their own members? These are thorny but important topics that we discuss today. This is part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Ross. The second part will be released as a premium episode. So Sweater Weather is growing and developing its model. Episode releases have been somewhat, you know, haphazard. I've done them when I can. What you can expect now is a weekly episode from Sweater Weather with one week a free episode available to the public, to anybody, and the next week a premium episode. Premium episodes are available to patrons of the show at the $5 a month level or higher. If you donate at the $10 or $20 a month level, you will receive additional perks as well. Your donation will help keep the show going and growing as I bring the best of Canadian left culture, publishing, and academia to video and audio. So head on over to Patreon to sign up. That's patreon.com forward slash Canadian sweater. The link is on our website and in the show notes. My thanks to all the viewers and listeners of the show so far. Thank you for following on Facebook video, for subscribing to our channel on YouTube, for reviewing an Apple podcasts. Thank you for liking, retweeting, and sharing wherever you see us on social media. That helps us grow too. So please continue to do that. And thanks again. Okay, let's get into this interview with Dr. Stephanie Ross, part one of Anti-Unionism in Canada. Thank you, Stephanie, for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's very exciting. Could you talk a little bit about what led you to write this book, Labor Under Attack, Anti-Unionism in Canada, and what uh, reception of it has been like? Hmm. Well, I, as Larry Savage and I, who co-edited the book, kind of talk about in the in the preface, um, you know, as labor studies profs, we encounter a lot of anti-union sentiment uh, in our classrooms, uh, and so we find ourselves having to have that conversation quite a lot. But so too in our daily lives, just in interacting with like friends or friends of friends, uh, extended family. Um, we can't, I can't even count the number of conversations I've had when people learn what I do for a living, uh, that started like, well, what about unions anyway? Like what, what uh, I had this experience with a, a union, uh, you know, I had, a, I was in a unionized workplace one time and, you know, I had a grievance that wasn't handled properly, or, you know, I tried to get a job in a unionized uh, environment and I couldn't pass the union's test, et cetera, et cetera. So that, you know, there, the number of times that we have to engage with people around 
what purpose unions serve and what and, and asking us to kind of make a case for them is uh, is countless, honestly. So, you know, I think we we also felt that the broader climate really begged uh, for a book like this, especially in Canada, where a lot of discussion had had happened in particular uh, realms, like, for instance, the question of government anti-union legislation or restrictive legislation has been really well researched, but less so on kind of the practices that employers engage in to uh, prevent unions from coming in or get rid of unions in, in, the work, in their workplaces, and, and certainly very little about uh, how working people feel about unions. Um, and what we do have uh, on that is sort of, you know, anecdotal or, um, you know, problematic in terms of how people's views are measured um, and kind of doesn't really capture a lot of the complexity. Um, so anyway, we, we thought it was an important thing to write about in the Canadian context, more about anti-unionism has been written in the US context, maybe for obvious reasons where the kind of overt anti-unionism of the employers is much more dominant in like public discourse. Um, and Canada generally is understood to be a more union friendly uh, country, but there are lots of indications that that's not universally true. So that was what motivated us. In terms of reception of the book, I'd say uh, of, the of the three edited volumes that Larry Savage and I have done together, it's the one that has had the least attention. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, it, because I think it actually documents some really important things going on in Canadian workplaces. Um, and I hope that in talking with you about it, it might get uh, some wider readership, actually. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure uh, how to explain that, but for sure our, our books on union politics and on the public sector, on unionism in the public sector have been more, uh, more widely read. Um, and uh, I think this should also be more widely read, yeah. I agree. And I also want to take this opportunity to plug another book that you co-edited with um, Larry Savage, Building a Better World, Introduction to the Labor Movement in Canada. I'm currently reading that book with my union um, oh, in a fantastic. reading group. Yeah. So that's a really wonderful book. I've learned a lot. And I know many of us are learning a lot from that book too. Oh, amazing. That's, that is wonderful. Um, yeah. That's a book that uh, we uh, were very lucky to inherit from um, you know, two really important uh, scholars of the labor movement, uh, Errol Black and Jim Silver. And um, yeah, we're really proud of that book and uh, the important role that it plays in labor education, especially. And um, so I'm really excited to hear that that's being read by people who are, um, you know, who are living who are living with unionism and wanting to put their own union experience into a larger context. That's amazing. So um, I was wondering if you could start off with uh, maybe just a summary, you know, uh, uh, of the benefits of unions for, for workers and the economy overall. I mean, we'll be getting into anti-union sentiment pretty soon, but I like, you know, uh, you know as you point out in, in the introduction to the book, anti-unionism is a relatively pervasive attitude 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes passes for common knowledge. And so I think while most of my audience here will already understand that unions are generally good, uh, I find it helpful from time to time to hear re- rehearse these arguments and statistics in favor of unions. For sure. Well, the one place to start is to talk about the real material advantage that unionization provides people. Um, uh, sometimes it's called the union advantage. Uh, but it's measurable. Um, you know, we can measure uh, the relatively higher wages, uh, the greater access to benefits like um, pensions, uh, sick uh, benefits, sick leave, paid sick leave, you know, prescription drugs, um, you know, a whole wide variety of material things that go into someone's employment contract that unions clearly provide more for workers. So, um, you know, this is a complex issue, but like just from a kind of a gross, like a a large scale perspective, you know, in 2020, Statistics Canada tells us that the average hourly wage for people covered by union contract was $32.66 an hour. Um, In comparison, non-union workers, made $28.08 an hour. So that's 28% more uh, if you are unionized. Uh, Now that doesn't take into all kinds of other factors like, all right, occupation, uh, the sector of the economy you're working in, whether you're private or public sector, like we we, we could go down that rabbit hole and calculate, uh, you know, what the union advantage is for if you hold a whole bunch of other things that might justify differences in wages, uh, constant. But uh, even when we do that, we see that there is clearly a union advantage. And it's even greater when you look at workers who experience other forms of marginalization or um, discrimination in the workplace. So for instance, again, uh, that same data looking at temporary workers, right? So people who are relatively disadvantaged uh, because they are not, they don't have permanent employment. If you just compare temporary workers, the difference is $29.06 for their average wage if they're unionized compared to $20.95. That's $8, almost, it's over $8 difference, 39% more. If you're a temporary worker, who's covered by a union contract. Um, If you look at uh, uh, gender, uh, if you look at racialization, although the data that we have on that is not really very great uh, because uh, many workplaces don't collect statistics on that uh, basis. So like there's, we're we're less able to show the union advantage for many um, marginalized groups, but it's very clear that from the gender perspective, women get an even greater union advantage um, compared to their male counterparts um, if they are unionized. And they're also much more likely to enjoy the fruits of gender pay equity. So if you compare the gender pay gap between unionized workers and non-unionized workers, it's much smaller. Still there, but it's much smaller in unionized workplaces. So there's, and there's reasons we can talk about for why that is, um, but it's it's an important thing to note that the more the more discrimination one is likely to experience in the labor market, the more likely a union is going to help you in this material sense. And it also 
contributes to explaining why when we do surveys, why women, why young people, why workers of color uh, are much more likely to be open to unionization than their older white male counterparts because they have more labor market discrimination to overcome. And so the union is an even more potent tool for them than for those who already can, you know, can get advantage in the labor market because of their relatively more privileged status, but because of their other social identities or locations. So that's one big factor. And, um, you know, I think this is even more the case in COVID. So like, again, we're, we're at the very beginnings of being able to track the impact of COVID on workplaces. And, um, you know, we've, there's a lot of stories uh, in the media, a lot of statistics, Canada work that's being done on this. Uh, but I'm working with um, some other uh, folks at McMaster, Wayne Luchuk, Peter Grafe, and uh, Mo Ferdosi. Uh, and we're doing a study on the impact of COVID uh, on Ontario workplaces. And preliminarily what we are finding is that, um, that union, the unionized respondents to our survey are showing that they are much less likely to have lost their jobs or to have lost wages. They're much more likely to have access to paid sick days. Um, they're much less likely to have had negative interactions with their employers during COVID. So like conflicts over um, a whole host of things like um, whether you're being forced to go to work or you're forced to, for instance, like take, take uh, vacation time to, to pay for time off because you can't go to the workplace. Um, or you're being laid off, et cetera. Um, they're much more likely to have had positive health and safety interventions in the workplace. So the, the union advantage isn't just about money. It's also about the other aspects of the workplace that enable um, healthy and safe work that allow people to be protected from things like a public health crisis that um, that you know non-union workers are much more vulnerable to. Um, so uh, I mean, again, we're very early days in doing the, those kinds of analyses, but I I'm fairly confident that we're going to be able to show um, a measurable advantage uh, in in the COVID era to unionization and. You know, it, it, we're also seeing that unions are, are unions are um, perhaps uh, seen as a vehicle for protecting people in COVID because anecdotal evidence again is saying that uh, the labor boards are very busy with uh, applications for certification. Uh, lots of workers are. Um, in this moment, uh, seeking union representation where they may not otherwise have done um, because they want some collective representation dealing with all of the dislocations at work that is coming from this very difficult moment that we're all living through. So uh, is there, do you have a, a handy statistic about the, the rate of applications for union certification right now? I've encountered uh, maybe that headline elsewhere, but um, uh, yeah. that's very fascinating and very revealing. Um, yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, I don't, and uh, but it's something that 
um, you know, we should dig up. Um, it's noticeable. It, it's, it, it is. And people are just saying like uh, it, employment side, uh, like employer side law firms are talking about, uh, about how much busier they are in dealing with certification applications. So it's not just, uh, you know, PR from, you know, the union side, it's there, there's something, there is something going on for sure. Um, and I mean, there's some high profile cases too, like that are really unusual, like Ripley's Aquarium in Toronto just unionized. Um, af yes, they did after a, um, what I, mean, I wouldn't say an aggressive anti-union uh, campaign, but it certainly was there. There were certainly anti-union messages that the employer sent out in advance of the vote, but it looks like they, they, they won, they got certified. Um, and then of course in the US, right, there's um, the case of uh, Amazon workers in Alabama who are seeking to unionize, which would be a huge breakthrough in that uh, sector. Um, but, you know, the fact that uh, so many people are not unionized, but are essential workers and who are facing uh, not just intensified work environments, and work pressures, but having to do so in, um, you know, in ways that are risking their lives, right? They have to go to physical workplace and work to, you know, to, to make the economy function as we can't go to physical, uh, you know, stores, etc. I mean, it, it's not surprising that they would be seeking unionization, uh, but it, it is surprising given how much union suppression has gone on in workplaces like Amazon, right? It's a big, it's a big case to watch for sure. So you've already gestured to, to this a little bit, but you know, in the introduction to labor under attack, you and Larry Savage lay out a helpful uh, schema that breaks down the different varieties and sources of anti-unionism. So what are the main sources of anti-unionism what ideas do anti-union sources promote and what arguments do they make? Right. So we kind of divide the sources of anti-union ideas and actions into three categories. So the first was looking at government um, and looking at the ways that government uses legislation to express their views on whether or not unions should be supported or not. Um, and, you know, I would say that, you know, over the, you know, the last 150 years in Canada, right, there's been a, uh, a rise and fall of, you know, government support for unionization. I mean, certainly at the beginning, government's uh, uh, view was very much that unions were either criminal conspiracies to, you know, uh, inflate wage rates in ways that were uh, illegitimate. Uh, and so they, they, they kind of were in a, in a realm of illegality or quasi-illegality well, well until the 20th century, until the Second World War. Um, after which, you know, there was a kind of a shift in orientation that um, government took the view, tended to take the view that um, some balance was needed between these two big social forces, right? Uh, capital and labor, right? employers and unions. And so, you know, in the, from the 1940s on in Canada, we tended to see a much more uh, supportive environment for unionization uh, legislation 
permitting that, but there are always caveats to that, right? Because the premise of government uh, orientation towards unions is that, especially in the post-war era, is that what's being sought is balance between what are kind of conceived as relatively equal uh, partners or combatants, let's say, in the workplace. Um, but there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, employers enjoy a structural advantage even when there is a union in place. And so, you know, how balanced that legislation is, is really, uh, you know, a, a question that uh, depends on your perspective, right? Um, but let's just say that for a, a significant period of time, that was sort of the orientation that, you know, you wanted to try to allow these two important parties to meet and uh, engage each other on a relatively equal playing field. And that started to shift again in the late 70s, early 80s, where government tended to view that um, the balance had been tipped too far into the union side. And that in particular, uh, especially where public sector unions were concerned, you know, the general or the national interest had to be preserved against this, quote, special interest. Um, and that's partly why uh, you see a lot of government intervention from the 70s on in public sector collective bargaining and strikes, because they have sort of framed um, the demands of public sector workers as uh, Con con contrary to the public interest. And so the public interest has to kind of trump those uh, workers' interests and rights. Um, and, you know, I think there's just been more of a general shift in government policy circles towards the view that um, the market should be free, workplaces should be uh, as lightly regulated as possible so that uh, em employers uh, you know, private business can seek efficiencies, right? And so unions are increasingly framed by government as an impediment to productivity and, and efficiency, even though there's no, there's no evidence to support such claims. Those are sort of more ideological claims about um, that, that, are, that are deeper, <laughs> that, are, that speak to a deeper motivation, which is, you know, kind of rests in the second source of anti-unionism, which is employers. Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that employers are the prime mover of anti-union strategies and ideas and, the, and legislation that seeks to enact those anti-union sentiments and interests. And their rationales are fairly simple, regardless of what they say. Uh, their rationales are that unions cost them more money, which I guess we have to say is true, right? Uh, at least on the face of it, right? Because the union advantage is real. Um, and, but also, and I think as importantly, uh, that unions challenge the unilateral control that employers hold over their workplaces. Uh, and that at the, while, while we could say that from employers perspective, unions interfere with profit-making, um, or maximizing profits that go to shareholders, right? To, that can be paid towards, you know, dividends or what have you. Um, that 
Equally important and problematic for employers is that unions, the presence of unions means that employers can't just do whatever they want. They actually have to negotiate with a party uh, and they have to negotiate a whole bunch of workplace rules that they would prefer not to. And so like this goes back in, uh, to the, our discussion earlier about like what difference do unions make? Well, another really important contribution that unions make is that they, they provide workers with collective voice in the workplace. They can speak up about problems in the workplace, about how the, how work is designed, and they can they can forward their interests in uh, the organization of the workplace that is contrary to the interests of often employers, uh, and that 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 they also impose a kind of rule of law in workplaces that. Um, reduces the arbitrariness of management action. So management can't rely on favoritism or kind of unchallenged, unsystematic uh, and often very biased decisions about you know, who to promote or how to make workplace changes, how to distribute good things or bad things in the workplace. Uh, you know, work, uh, the presence of unions actually imposes a, a set of rules that are meant to be transparent and relatively more fair than those kind of arbitrary decisions. And, you know, that is an interference with work, with employer freedom, right? And so that is often how anti-union ideas are, are framed, that, that, that unions uh, interfere with employer freedom and with the primacy of private property rights, right? The idea that if you own private property, you should be able to do what you wish with it including the labor of the people that you're contracting to work in that private property. Um, uh, I would say that's a very traditional uh, uh, view, although still afoot, very widely uh, held cultural view. Uh, you know, we live in a capitalist economy and these are important basic assumptions about how capitalism works uh, and quote should work. Uh, at least on the part of the, its proponents. But I think now we also see, and this has probably always been the case, but increasingly we see that employers appeal to worker ideas of worker freedom and worker individualism, right? To, to stoke anti-union sentiment, to say to workers, why do you want a union negotiating for you when you could negotiate a, you know, on your own the wages that you deserve, right? Because you work hard. And why do you wanna be dragged down to a wage rate that is just sort of, you know, gonna flatten out uh, all of the differences between, you know, workers who are really working hard and are really productive and are really capable and those other workers who are just, you know, phoning it in or uh, punching a time card, et cetera, and not really contributing. Um, I mean, that, there's tons to unpack there, but I think that's a, a very common uh, way to, to, uh, to stoke worker anti-union sentiment and, and employers use it quite a lot. And I would say that the, the, there's other things too. The fear of conflict is really important in, as a tool in employers' strategies. Um, especially when there is a unionization drive afoot, 
um, you know, they frame unions as the source of conflict in an otherwise harmonious workplace. So like everything's great, but now there's a union. You want to, there's some people, some agitators that want to bring a union in. And so now there's going to be conflict and, and who wants conflict at work? Of course, no, no one does. Right. But the truth of the matter is that like conflict exists in the workplace, whether there's a union there or not. And what unions do is they help to, to express that conflict in ways that allow people to have their needs met in a way that's more effective than if it's just individuals trying to represent themselves. Um, so, you know, I think that employers are, are very um, uh, attuned to that sense that people have that they would like to have a harmonious workplace and they frame unions as the threat, even though really the threat is if you bring a union in, we're going to act less cooperatively. <laughs> the employer is, gonna, is going to be more oppositional. Um, so they're kind of making a promise, a threat really, um, even though they're trying to like frame the union as the source of the conflict. Um, and I think the last thing that I'll say about this is, um, you know, there, this idea of a harmonious workplace is really powerful. And there's a lot of ways that employers express it. Um, and, you know, some of the chapters in our book, especially Kendra Coulter's chapter on organizing in retail really shows how the family, the idea of family uh, is mobilized by employers to, to block unionization, right? The idea that one's workplace is a family that, um, and that connotes all kinds of ideas about loyalty and love and then if you bring some quote foreign element into that relationship, you're, you're betraying people, you are insulting them. Um, so the mobilization of all of those emotions and the idea that, you know, of course we spend so much time at work. In some ways our workplace is like a, sometimes we spend more time with our workmates than we do with our family members. Those are, those are important relationships, but the way that the employer frames them is to say like your relationship with the employer is like a family relationship and that therefore you have loyalty obligations to us that if you bring a union into it, you are betraying us. Um, wow. Those are powerful ideas and they, um, they are the kinds of ideas that are really important to name even before a union drive uh, is afoot because it's important for workers to recognize them when they emerge because they will for sure emerge. The third source of anti-unionism, I guess, or the, the third um, dimension is the sentiments that workers themselves have. And some of that is you know, obviously influenced by the broader uh, workplace, political and cultural environment. Um, you know, it's difficult not to see that the default in popular culture is, is anti-union or, or union invisible, like the invisibility of unions, except in very particular ways that contribute to this narrative that unions are sources of conflict. Um, 
the unions are otherwise invisible unless we're talking about like a breakdown in collective bargaining uh, and a strike um, or uh, protests um, that are disrupted, right? So there is a way that the coverage of unions in news as well as their representation in other aspects of popular culture tend to either frame them in a negative light uh, or make them invisible altogether. Most of the activities of unions are invisible in our public realm. And so it's no wonder that most workers who aren't members of unions, right? That's about 70% of Canadian workers don't really necessarily know from a material or lived experience what unions do on a daily basis. So that is part of it. But the other part is that workers do have, do, workers do have lived experience with unions that are contradictory and that there are aspects of the way that unions do things that um, foster or reproduce negative associations with unions. And that's some of the most difficult stuff to talk about because it means really looking at union practice in a critical way, not to say that unions are bad or unnecessary. I mean, they are human institutions and they're flawed, like all of them, right? But that they, that they don't get stronger if we don't confront the ways that unions do things that foster sense of exclusion or marginalization or um, resentment. And that that is really something strategically, politically and morally important for unions to confront. Um, because if they don't, <laughs> that stuff will be used by people who are, who are genuinely anti-union, who want to eliminate the presence of unions in our economy and society. Um, to magnify the problems um, and justify more thorough and systematic anti-union legislation and activity. So in, in your essay in the book, uh, The Complexities of Worker Anti-Unionism, you analyze polling da data from recent decades about Canadians and workers' attitudes towards unions. So I'm wondering, what are the reassuring trends? What are the concerning trends in this polling? Who is most likely to approve of unions? Who is most likely to disapprove of them and, and why? And you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of polling data actually about this comes at a different time. So mm -hmm. I'm also wondering just what's the most important takeaway from mm -hmm. all of this polling about union or Canadians attitudes towards unions? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the overall highlight is that even though the number varies over time, still a clear majority of Canadians that say that unions have a positive impact, um, that they make society more fair. Um, so at that level, that there is something reassuring about those uh, polling numbers, although, as you point out, you know, they do vary significantly over time. And um, I think to, to some extent, depending on who's asking the question and for what motivation, because, you know, the way that polling questions are asked um, are not always neutral. So um, 
but but that being said, we still see a a, a majority of Canadians um, saying that unions have a positive impact. What's concerning in that polling data is that um, we see a variation and maybe important decline in uh, the sense that people think that unions are still relevant. Um, although I would be interested to see more recent data um, given some of the things we talked about before around the resurgence of interest in unionization. Um, and I guess the, the most important numbers in a lot of those surveys or those, those polls concern whether a non-union person would, if they had the opportunity, join. And a lot of those questions are often asked, for instance, the, the vector polls that uh, were done with the Canadian Labour Congress um, asked if there were, was no fear of reprisal from the employer, would you join a union? So if all of the barriers that are normally experienced and all of the opposition that one normally experiences um, were taken away, would you join? Uh, and so, you know, in, in 2003, that number was 33%. So 33% of non-union workers in 2003 said, if there was no fear of reprisal, they would join a union. That's a lot. That's a, that's a big chunk. Um, that number uh, has varied significantly and it's, it's, it's down a bit. I mean, certainly it, it plummeted, uh, although there's no public numbers for that. I, I know uh, uh, that those numbers have gone down. Uh, and the last public version, which was the CLC ECOS poll from 2017, uh, 28% uh, of that group said yes. So it's not catastrophic, but it's certainly softened. Um, the other number of concern is the number of people who said that if, who were unionized, who said that they would prefer not to be unionized. Um, that's another number that shows like a, a, a good chunk of unionized workers. Um, uh, for instance, in the vector poll in 2003, uh, you know, one quarter of unionized respondents said they'd, if they had a choice, they would not be in a union. You know, one quarter of unionized, union, unionized workers saying that should be a concern for the labor movement. And I think that it is a concern. Um, we don't really have more recent data on that question. So I can't really speak to how uh, that has evolved over time, but the there is, I think, a a sense in the labor movement that you know there there are sources of discontent within unions. The question is what to do about it, how to respond to it, and one of the major responses that I talk about in this chapter is sort of the PR response, right? That the the presumption that the reason why uh, we see this anti-union sentiment, whether on the part of unionized or non-unionized workers, is a, is a lack of education about what, what unions do. And so what we need to do is tell people why unions are great. And that is 
fine for, for what it's worth. Like there's no question that the visibility of unions is a problem and that the knowledge about what unions do is uh, very thin. Um, but my view is that this is not a PR problem, especially when it comes to that number of people who are unionized, who are discontented enough that they would prefer not to remain a member of a union. And that calls for different kinds of strategies. Um, and I think a different analysis, uh, a different understanding of, or attempt to understand the source of the problem as not merely one of education and uh, knowledge, but of the aspects of the lived experience in unions themselves that may lead people to feel disaffected. Um, and so the, the rest of my chapter is really trying to understand some of those sources and to, to think through why and how unions might approach the work that they do in a way that, that, that deals with those sources uh, in a sincere way rather than in a, uh, a way that avoids dealing with some of the really troubling and naughty problems that uh, exist when you're trying to represent many people with diverse interests. I mean, that's politics, right? Um, there's always gonna be conflicts uh, in that kind of work, but the way that we carry out that work will determine how solidaristic, how unified, how uh, invested people feel, how represented they feel by their union organizations. So, um, yeah. So I think those are the those are the the things to to note in the polling. I mean, with all of the caveats that polls are snapshots in time, they don't uh, necessarily reflect learning or, um, you know, the more complex or nuanced attitudes that people have over time about a, a, something like the role that unions have um, and how people change their views um, depending upon the the context and what's going on in the world and how they um, how they see uh, the the role that unions play in concrete struggles over economic and political issues. So there there is a you want to take all that with a grain of salt, but you don't want to just ignore it either. Yeah, just a, an aside on this. Um, thinking about an example, a friend who uh, works in. Uh, the college, Ontario college system. And mm -hmm. um, he, he's somebody who I would, you know, describe as not particularly political, not particularly ideologically invested in left or right politics, just someone who likes his job and wants to do a good job. And I know that the recent strike uh, in the call in the college and university system, what year was that? Was that 2018? Uh, I think it's uh, 2017. But I, I think that's right. 
And I know that that strike, which lasted a few weeks, really solidified him on the side of his union because it was he saw yeah. what his union was doing. He saw how it was organizing people to work together towards very concrete goals that he agreed with. And then he knew that the public supported as well, ultimately. Yeah. And that, I think, really swayed him to, to be more, much more uh, invested, interested and supportive of his own union, who he was probably, I would say, just ap more apathetic about before. So yeah. that's a, a way that actually, you know, when a union, when you see a, a union doing something and you're part of it, that can really change your attitude very quickly. 100%. I totally agree with that. I mean, th there is a lot of uh, credence to the view that like strikes, for instance, are schools, right? They are, they are moments of learning, of profound learning. And not just about like, how do you, or, you know, how do you organize and how do you, how do you do a campaign and how do you, uh, but learning about uh, sort of the deep structures of society and about your relationships with your fellow workers um, and about what is possible for you to do together. Um, for sure. And those moments are like breaks with normality, right? They're, they're breaks with routine that really can transform people in profound ways. It, it's true that, you know, people can become transformed in the other way, right? That their anti-union sentiment can become deepened by such moments if the union doesn't do what you describe, which is actually committed to principles that uh, really are rooted in what workers want, that, that they fight on a principled basis, that they are really trying to um, uh, put forward members' interests in a sincere and genuine way. And they're involving, they're involving members uh, in the discussion and the planning of those things uh, in, in meaningful ways as well. Um, so I think that, uh, yeah, things like that can really transform someone's views and, and polls don't really, don't really capture that. Um, and they, so they can only be a, a very general guide to large scale trends over time. They can't tell us what's going on in a particular union, uh, which is really where the rubber hits the road, to be honest. It's like that, that's, that's really where, you know, union members, uh, activists, leaders need to focus their attention is in, you know, the, what is the quality of life in the union, in your union? Uh, and what, what can be done to deal with the sources of um, inequality, resentment, uh, et cetera, in that context? Um, of engagement in that context or alienation, as it were. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the, the rest of the chapter and then some of the other chapters in the book really talk about the kinds of things that unions have done that um, uh, sometimes by, with very limited choices and sometimes making choices where the long-term consequences aren't fully understood. And then sometimes making choices that are really just quite explicitly bad um, that, uh, that reinforce these negative views. So like in terms of the, 
you know, choices that maybe are not choices, but, um, you know, the chapter by June Corman and Noreen Pupo on John Deere in uh, the Niagara region really shows the corrosive impact that, you know, two-tiered contracts and uh, concessions over a long period of time can have on internal solidarity and unity um, amongst a group of workers who are unionized. And like the negative long-term impact of that experience on those workers' centers, like that, that factory is no longer open, but you know, those folks are gonna go and work in other workplaces. Um, their material lived experience of the union negotiating inequality amongst tiers of workers is like so deeply uh, undermining of the role that unions um, have in people's lives to be to create more egalitarianism, right? Because all that union advantage stuff that I talked about, in some ways, is really premised upon um, the egalitarianism that that unions bring to the workplace. Right? Unions shrink the gap between workers at the top and workers at the bottom of the wage scale. They try to standardize it. They try to, you know, minimize the inequalities uh, by standardizing job descriptions, but all of those things that are, are important uh, to create some sense of justice, right? So then you have a situation where people who are doing the same job are making vastly different uh, amounts of money and are actually being made to compete with each other, um, to police each other's productivity so deeply damaging because you know you have that in a non-union workplace you don't need a union for that kind of stuff um but to see the union sort of engaged in legitimating that way of organizing workers against each other mm -hmm. uh it was deeply problematic now i think that it it would be said that all right in a in a situation where you're facing having a job or no job premised upon these concessions, um, people would choose a job, even if it was under these very, very uh, unequal conditions. Um, and maybe that's so, but there are long-term implications for those decisions that uh, poison the ground for future unionization. And we can't ignore that. Um, so I think that's one, one realm of sort of material union practice that uh, really needs to be confronted in terms of understanding how unions reproduce uh, anti-union sentiment.